Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you, and state names intrigue you if atlases globes city plans subway maps and of course world maps are your thing if you can name the capital city of namibia and if you get giddy about flags you are in the right place this is map corner a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by royfield brown and claire asprey now on with the show Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royville Brown. He's 52.3 degrees north and 1.5 degrees west, uh, which puts me in Brum. And with me today is Claire Asprey. Where are you today, Claire? Uh, it will surprise no one to learn that I'm at 52.1 degrees north and 0.5 degrees east in Bedford. Map Corner is a podcast dedicated to the love of maps and to all things Carter Phillip. So if Peters is your projection, you're in the right place. And in this episode, we're joined um, talking to adventurer, sailor, and Renaissance man, Russell Heath. Boom. Wow. Welcome. And we have an audio postcard all the way from Whitby in North Yorkshire from our very own Claire Asprey. And it's rather good. Now, folks, don't forget, you should be reviewing us on iTunes. I, I presume that everybody who's on this Zoom call during the recording of this podcast has already done that and given us a five-star rating. But if you're at home and you've downloaded this podcast, you get it for free. It's great. It's informative. The least you can do just to show a little bit of appreciation, nip over onto Apple Podcasts and write us a rip-roaring five-star review. And uh, we've got, uh, again, some Map Corner listeners with us today on the Zoom recording. And if you want to be in the Zoom recordings, then join the Facebook group and you'll find a link or contact us via Twitter and uh, we'll send you a link directly. It's great to be able to have these conversations with some of our listeners with us. We record these the first Saturday of every month at 6pm UK time, which is 1pm Eastern. Well, normally it is until the clocks have moved or 10am Pacific. And today we're interviewing uh, Russell Heath. Mr. Heath, how are you today, sir? Uh, I am quite well, thanks. You're in Eastern Maine. And um, I th- we were just talking to you. I think, I think you said you're in, in a log cabin. You know, you somebody who's like thrown away the trappings of civilization. Are you a wild man, sir? 
Oh, yeah, I wish. I think I'm a fraud if you're looking for a wild man. I do like living in beautiful places, and I've never been much interested in the conveniences. There's a, for me, there's a great joy in chopping your own wood and hauling your own water. So much of my life has been in, in houses or boats or cabins, wherever, where I had to chop my own wood and haul my own water. And you've been pretty intrepid throughout your life. You know, you seem to have kind of a wanderlust from quite a young age. So um, kind of what, what's prompted that? Who knows? I grew up outside of Philadelphia in the suburbs and I loathed it. I started loathing it before I think I was potty trained. So I left as soon as I could, which was after 11th grade, and hitchhiked to Alaska. And I don't know. What I loved about Alaska is it was a long way from, from the suburbs of Philadelphia. It was... You know, unbelievably beautiful. I, I am moved by the beauty of the landscape and it's challenging. I like to be challenged in a physical sense. And there turned out I didn't know it at the time, but there's extraordinary community. There's some really, really fine people in Alaska. Yeah. Well, I think when you are so dependent on being quite self sufficient, you are dependent on mutuality as well, aren't you? I think that creates community. And you're right. I mean, one of the things is I lived in a town, Juneau, which is 30,000 people. You can't drive to it. Plane or boat are the only way to, to get there. And consequently, particularly when I was younger and none of us had money for plane tickets, we couldn't leave. So we had to create our own mm-hmm. fun. We created our own Christmas parties and, and Thanksgiving. And so you either created your own fun or you drank a lot. Those are your options. Right. And when you left Alaska, it was on a boat. And then you proceeded to go all around the world. So I'm really interested in hearing more about the decision to do that. Uh, how did you make it happen? And then uh, we were going to talk a bit about what happened as you went around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's certainly where, where I had to use a few maps. Actually, that was the second time I left Alaska. because I left Alaska to go around the world four or five years previously, but I went overland. And had those big Michelin maps, if you're aware of those big Michelin red maps that or continent-wide. Just love those maps. The decision to sail around the world happened one afternoon. I was skiing with a buddy way up in the mountains. We were on top of this ridge. We were, we were um, completely fog-bound. I mean, Juno's a rainforest, so being in clouds is not an uncommon experience. So you couldn't see anything up and you couldn't see anything down. All you could do is see about 100 yards in front of you. And my buddy lived on a boat down in the harbor. And I I asked him, what was he going to do with the boat? He, has a, he had a 27-foot fiberglass sloop. And I'd never sailed. I didn't know anything about sailing. And I assumed when I asked the question that he would sail to a, a nearby village, a neighboring village. And in Alaska, a neighboring village is 100 or so miles away. But nevertheless, that'd be a good, a good trip. And he said, oh, I want to sail her into the South Pacific. And I said, you can do that? And it was at that moment, it was like God leaned out of the clouds and hit me with a, with a two by four. I was, I had no choice. As soon as we got off that ridge, I didn't even go home. I'd soaking wet in my, my ski gear. I went to the, to the library and looked for the sailing section. And in the 10 years or so, I guess it was five years I had been living in Juneau. The only time I'd ever been in the sailing section of the library is when I'd been lost. I had no interest. (laughs) And I pulled out all the sailing books about cruising. And from that point on, that's what I was going to do. I was going to sail around the world. And how long was it from when you first decided to do it and went and tried to learn how to sail a boat from a book and when you actually started sailing a boat? Because I imagine that's quite different from reading about it to actually doing it. 
Yeah, about two years. Okay. So that's quite a long prep time. Well, yeah. So I had to get the money. I was broke at the time. I owed my girlfriend money. So I had to pay her back and get the money together to buy, build a, buy the boat. So it took me a year to I mean, Russell, did you really have to, though? Did you have to pay her back? All you need to do is get on your boat and sail off. She's going <laughs> to find you again. I might just say I don't endorse Royfield's approach to relationships. <laughs> no, I understand that. Um, but she was invaluable in helping me get off shore. So the, the, the few thousands that I owed her were, were amply repaid by her support in the next two years. Yeah, so I bought the boat a year later, and it, and it took me a year getting her ready before I, I could leave. Now, I know how to unfold a traditional paper map, orientate myself north, east, south, and west, give me a, a street pattern. I'm golden. I can get from point A to point B, and this is pre-Google Maps and the little blue dot moving along to help you. I've never been able to understand how you navigate the sea. Now, I know it's something about uh, the stars and the sun coming up this way and going down the other, but that seemed to me pretty, pretty broad, right? So please explain uh, to a layman who just happens to own a map podcast how the dickens you navigate when you're on the sea. There's no features there. Well, that's true. And so almost every cruiser has a GPS. So they're following a blue facade anyway. They don't know anything about navigating. And then they've got their, 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 their chart plotters. And so they know exactly where they are and, and, and they don't have to think. And I was dead set against that. One, I couldn't afford it, but I might as well turn that, that, that into a virtue. And so I was going to do it by myself. So I bought a sextant and I bought all the charts and I bought lots of manuals to figure it all out. And I figured I'd learn how to sail on the way down the coast. I mean, I, well, I had to learn how to sail. I also had to learn how to navigate. I didn't have time to learn. Well, I was ashore and Juno surrounded by mountains anyway, so you can't really navigate. You can't do celestial there. So yeah, I launched myself into the Gulf of Alaska in August of, eight, of 86. And, and two things happened. One is I got really seasick and it never occurred to me that I might get seasick. So there's no way I could read all those manuals to learn how to navigate, how to use a sextant. And two is that you're right, there's no landmarks. So even when you do navigate, there's no way you can check that you did it right. So it wasn't a big loss because it's hard to miss North America. You go south a ways, you turn left, you're bound to run into it, which is, <laughs> which is what I did. I, I figured that when I figured I'd gone a thousand miles south, I turned left and came into Vancouver Island and then just followed the coast down into, uh, Juan de Fuca Strait, which leads to Seattle. So that was my first passage, but I had not learned how to do any celestial navigation at that point. And in fact, I mean, this is a bit of a long story. You want go ahead, Roy Feldman. No, I was just going to say that that coastline from Alaska um, all the way down to Washington State is just stunning, isn't it? All the islands and the inlets and the sounds. It just it must have been breathtaking. Yeah, but I didn't see any of it. I was three or oh, four miles Oh, because you just went out to sea and then just just came back. Yeah, I didn't got gotcha. you. Gotcha. So, but I will say that in prepping for today, I I have looked up things around how to use a sextant, and I and I've seen stuff like that. I do not understand it. So um, I would be very grateful if you could explain how does it work and how does it relate to the maps and how do you even have a faintest idea where you are. 
Well, lots of stories around that. So I can give you the how-to, okay? And let me just do that as briefly as possible. So the navigational bodies, there's the sun, the moon, the planets, and 57 navigational stars. And you can buy a nautical almanac, which is put out you know, by the Greenwich um, Observatory, that plots the position of each one of those bodies through the course of a year. So when you know that, then the rest is just simple trigonometry. What you need to measure, you need two inputs. You need to measure angle of the body above the horizon, and that's what the sextant does, and the time that you've measured that. So if you got the time, I mean, it has to be to the second, and the angle, which has to be to the second, minutes, you know, degree, minutes, seconds, really accurate. Then you can go into the nautical almanac and essentially find your position. Now, there's, there's some trigonometry involved. And what people have done over, over the years is they've solved every trigonomic formula for the entire surface of the earth. And it's put into these manuals. So all you have to do is look up the body, the angle, your dead reckon, where you think you are, just as, and then you can pull you, the trigonometry has already been done for you by some guy back in the 19th century who all did it by hand. And so you can pull out the data you need from the, from the trigonometry. So that was like the first GPS that somebody did the trigonometry for you. You know, when, when Lord Nelson was doing his navigation, he had to do the trigonometry every time he did a, a sighting. And let's see. And Nelson had the chronometer that had already been invented. Uh, you know, by the, by the late 18th century. But prior to about 1750, you didn't have a, a clock. You didn't have a reliable clock. So it was much more difficult to get your longitude. Anyway, I'm getting too complex. I'm, I'm getting a newer understanding and appreciation for people who navigated across oceans before we had any of this stuff locked down. Totally. And to make it a little easier, if you are an unknown distance from a flagpole and you're looking to the top of the flagpole, that is equivalent of your of your celestial body, and you can measure the angle to the from where you are from your eye is to the top of the flagpole, and right there, just that angle will determine a circumference, you know, the radius around that flagpole. And if you do two different flagpoles with two different angles, the two circles that you plot are going to intersect twice. And one, one place where they intersect, you can ignore because you know that's too far away. That could be hundreds or thousands of miles away. And then where the, the one that you have left is where you are. So that's essentially celestial navigation. Wow. Just one thing, Russell, before we move on. Can we put the debate as to whether the Earth is flat completely to bed by <laughs> trigonometry and what you've just said? Just saying. Because I've got a cousin who's telling me categorically that the earth is flat and whatever. And I, I don't know I, who I, they're dealing with, Royfield. Like, you literally do maps and globes. <laughs> uh, that, that was a weak attempt at, uh, at levity uh, there, Russell, which you, you, you probably realised. But you've led a really fascinating life. Um, you're not just a, you know, a seafaring, intrepid, wild man uh, from, uh, from, from the eastern Maine. Uh, you've also crammed in a lot of, a lot of stuff. So... Has your wanderlust basically informed all of your, your adult life or, or is this something which you just jump into from time to time? You know, it's a good question because I think a lot of the times, particularly when we're younger, when we're driven to do things, it's not because it's not like, I don't know if you all know Henry David Thoreau, but he said in his most famous book, Walden, and he was writing um, 
early 19th century, you know, that he wanted to go to the woods to live more deliberately. So he made a conscious effort to change his lifestyle so that it matched the things that he, his values. And I could say a little bit of that, but mostly I was just running away from people and I was following whatever urges were within me. I, I didn't really have a choice. When I learned you could take a small boat across the ocean, I had to go. I never sat down and debated the pros and cons or what my parents might think or what it would do to my future, you know, earnings potential or my marriage prospects. I had to go. There was no higher level thought. You know, it was totally reptilian. And did you not get lonely at all? It took you a couple of years, right? So that's a long time. I don't even see me here. Four years. It was a four year trip. Well, you know, your four years, um, you're not out alone for four years, right? Most of the time you're in ports anyway. But yeah, when I was in my teens and 20s, loneliness was a big deal. I would climb mountains. I would, I would go into the backcountry in Alaska by myself. And yeah, it could be painfully lonely. But by the time that I took off in the sailboat, which is, I was 30 at that point, loneliness was not an issue. And generally for me, loneliness is is most apparent when I'm with people and I feel disconnected. When there are no people around, there's no hint, there's no sense of being disconnected. So, so did you have to like be alone to find yourself? Is it as simple as that? No, I'm still looking. I don't have a clue. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm being facetious, but I don't know what it means to find yourself. I think as I get older, well, to, feel, to feel comfortable with yourself, then maybe that's well, really that's- what you said. You're comfortable with who you are. And in your 20s, and prior to that, the reason why you had to get away is because you were searching for you. You know, you you were trying to be comfortable with you, with you. And as beautiful as Alaska was, you knew there was some something else. Or at least you thought there was something else. Well, I like the word com- comfortable. But I also, you know, I went on this trip when I went sailing, or even my first trip around the world, it was not in search of comfort. It was in search of excitement. Mm-hmm. It was in search of the novel. It was in search of physical challenge. It was in search of beauty. That's what I went, went in search for. Mm-hmm. The comfort and what made. helped you decide on your roots, but either when you went overland or on the, on the sea? Obviously, there's elements that you have to decide a certain type of route. But, you know, there are choices within that, surely. And, and what, what guided those choices? Yeah, that's a good question. And I have only one real regret about this trip the sailing trip. And that is, I was so focused on getting off, it never occurred to me to say, well, where do I want to go? And the same thing happened in my trip around the world over land. I was, I was in the middle of Sahara Desert, and I'm sitting, sleeping in my tent, and I'm thinking, well, how the hell did I get here? I wanted to go to Turkey. Here I am in <laughs> Hagar Massif in central Sahara in southern Algeria. So there was a certain amount of not really thinking it through. And if I were to do it again, I mean, there are a lot of other places in the world that I would go if I were being intentional. I uh, so tell you what we need to do is intentionally go onto our audio postcard. We're going to break with tradition because the button presser on today's episode is going to be one Claire Asprey. But don't worry, Russell, we're going to come back, right? Because I know for a fact, Andy Gladwin, right, would like to have... Um, dibs on you as we say in England by asking you a question or two or maybe Kenneth MacDonald or maybe Nick Roworth or maybe Pat I don't know somebody but we're going to do that after we've had um, an audio postcard from our wondrous co-host Claire 
And let's hope this works, because it did earlier. This is Claire, and in celebration of having been somewhere other than Bedford for pretty much the first time in about two and a half years, I'm doing an audio postcard to celebrate uh, Whitby in the north-east of England, in North Yorkshire, on the coast, uh, and especially Whitby around Halloween, because um, Whitby was the place where Dracula's boat runs aground in the in the novel Dracula and as a result of that has become a complete magnet for fans of well gothic type stuff so um, when we were there in uh, late October uh, there was a lot of people who had put in a huge amount of um, attention and efforts to amazing costumes uh, and I would say these are not really the goths of my youth. Uh, it's a little bit more steampunky these days, but um, the inventiveness and the creativity around those costumes were fantastic. And I certainly got the feeling that although people had made real effort, it was probably something that they did all year round. And absolutely would be, whilst being especially popular around Halloween, and there's a, there's a very popular... Uh, Gothic festival which has been running since 1994 uh, around Halloween it's a year-round thing um, and people uh, are attracted to Whitby because of those connections all through the year and it's a very dramatic looking place because you know as you, as you go to Whitby it, it's a, at the centre of it there's a sort of harbour uh, which is obviously at sort of sea level and, but it rises very steeply up both sides from the harbour um, and on the east side of the harbour there is uh, famously 199 steps carved into the hillside uh, where, which lead up to Whitby Abbey which was a very old, I think 7th century uh, abbey uh, later became a monastery, it was destroyed by the Vikings, it was rebuilt it then was destroyed in the era of Henry VIII when the monasteries were dissolved uh, now there's some very atmospheric kind of ruins of the monastery which are looked after by English Heritage and we attended a sort of special illuminated abbey event where it was all lit up in um, you know different sort of lighting and different colours. Uh, there was a sort of uh, walking show of people telling creepy stories. Um, yeah, it was all very atmospheric and spooky. Uh, yeah, so it was. Uh, it's really impressive um, to be up on that hill, looking out over the over the sea, and across the other side of the harbour as well. So, um, and next to the the steps leading down to the town of St Mary's Church, and there's a sort of famous graveyard there, which again is a really popular destination for people to visit. And down, as you come down the steps into the, the town on the, on the abbey side of the harbour, there's these t the narrow cobbled streets, lots of little shops um, and selling a lot of jet as well. So Whitby is also famous for jet, which is a sort of black stone, uh, which is very popular in Victorian times for uh, jewellery, especially for people who observe long periods of mourning. And so, again, it ties in very well with the kind of dark Gothic uh, themes uh, which attract people to Whitby. 
Um, we saw some very beautiful jet jewellery and there's a little sort of museum you can go around there as well, uh, looking at kind of the way that the jet was worked and uh, also where jets found in other places sort of around the world. Um, obviously, it's a sort of geological thing. So that was uh, that was really nice to see, and it's great to see so many you know small independent shops that are thriving all year round from the tourism, uh, and the way that Whitby attracts uh, you know people because of this connection with Dracula and you know with yeah with the sort of kind of dark side of life I suppose. Um, it was uh, it was really interesting to be there, especially around Halloween. Um, where people had made that extra effort. That looks really nice, Claire. Yeah, How long were you actually in Whitby for? Uh, we were just there one evening. In fact, you couldn't get accommodation in Whitby. I tried. Uh, it's kind of popular uh, around that time of year. We stayed in Scarborough. So. And I had no idea about this Dracula, steampunk, gothic thing at all. But that just looks amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like everyone was dressed up, but there were sufficient people dressed up that it wasn't unusual to see them, and I did feel kind of boring in civvies. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And on, on that note, being boring in, in, in civvies, Russell Heather, uh, we need to come back to you because uh, you have a second bite of the interview cherry on, on this show. But this is the time when I say Pat, Andy, Ken, Nick, Sarah, Fiona and Jennifer, uh, feel free uh, to chime in uh, with a question. What you can do, raise your hand, uh, use that bit of functionality on, on Zoom and or back channel and say, oi, I want to ask a question. So, so, so Mr. Heath, you, you know, you've literally circumnavigated the globe. Is it done? Is the wanderlust sated now? You're just like, ah, you know, I can just like kick back, drink cocoa. You know, I, I've done the Sahara. I've done the Sahel. You know, I've done the Pacific. You know, ah, you know, nothing more for me to see unless you team up with Jeff Bezos and be blasted into space. Well, if he offered, I would go. Um, he hasn't. He hasn't offered. You know, that's a good question, because one of the commitments I made to myself when I was coming back home and I was crossing the Atlantic 
was that I wouldn't do any longer, any multi-year trips until I'd squared away a few other parts of my life. And, and one of those parts was, you know, having, having a sweetie. Another one was having a job that I enjoyed. And the third, having a place that I love to be at, you know, a home that I build myself. So those are my three things, and they're not in any way adventurous or unusual. I mean, most people, I mean, many people have those as their, their life goals. You know, for me, it just turned out to be not possible. But anyway, I've got a sweetie now, so I'm, I'm, I'm cooling my jets. I'm not doing anything fancy until she's, she's ready to retire. Um, she's got to get a couple boys out of the house and, and launch. Russell, are you saying then that it's the love of a woman? As, as made you realize that there is something more beautiful than exploring the world. Yeah, I don't like that word more, but I like it. I like both in my life, right? And it'd be great to explore the world with her. I'm being less adventurous while she and I get other things squared away. And what is top on your list to go visit next time? Well, the next trip, which she probably won't come on that I'd like to do is, is get a... Um, you know, buy a Jeep, buy an SUV. What do you all, what do you all call them in, in, you know, a Land Rover and go from Morocco down to Cape Town, spend a year doing that. I would really like to explore uh, Eastern Europe, particularly Romania and Bulgaria. You know, those all those villages which survived the Second World War, all those medieval villages and maybe do that by bicycle. I've only ever been I've been to Romania and Bulgaria. I only went once. And there's a real sense when you got out of Bucharest. And you and I, we traveled down to go to Rusa in Bulgaria. Time just went sped backwards at a rate of light speed. There were yeah. people with horses and carts. So you went from Bucharest, which felt post communist Stalinist, but then just getting outside of that. Wow. So I can, you know, talk about medieval villages. And then you get someone like Rusa, which is beautiful and Victorian. You know, I think not enough is said about the kind of the rustic charm uh, of Eastern Europe. Yeah, I mean, even just looking at Whidbey, I mean, we don't have villages like that in the United States. And I just think, whoa, that's a place I'd like to see. This is a beautiful little <laughs> quaint village there. Yeah, it's a nice place. Do we have a question from our esteemed uh, Zoomers? Andy Gladwin, you're a troublemaker. You like to stir things up. Um, you got a question for our intrepid uh, explorer? Uh, not a question as such, but um, when uh, Russell was explaining about how to use a sextant and navigating it, it reminded me of um, there was an exhibition at the, the Royal Academy probably four or five years ago about the Polynesians and some of the artifacts there. They were effectively maps, but they were made out of sort of sticks and bound together with bits of string sort of strung across them. And they were, I think, really, I guess, celestial maps. And and the fact that they're navigating thousands of miles with these things, you know, it's just mind-boggling how they, they managed to do that because they've got no sextons or anything like that. But with the aid of these things and the stars, they, they, they managed it. So it's just uh, just phenomenal. Um, so I guess, you know, once you've got a sextant and um, I guess – relatively modern technology that they've been around for centuries it's it must be a doddle compared to sticks and bits of string but now i'm just um awestruck by you know sort of how you know they how people can manage to navigate these vast distances with which even with the sextant i mean basically you, you're you're relying on pretty you know it's ancient really isn't it it's a really rudimentary um you know 
elements that you're working on. So I, I just find it's fascinating and uh, it's mind-boggling how 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 people can can do it. No, I, I totally agree, and and I think we forget how skilled people are in their environment, particularly when they have generations and generations of experience in that environment. You think of you know the Aboriginals in Australia and their song lines and how they could traverse a continent and get to where they were going, as well as the Polynesians. So, it, yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. Mm. And the, the other thing about the Polynesians is that not only did they um, traverse the largest ocean in the world, and they did it with, with what were maps, um, but they did it with such flimsy uh, materials, you know, in terms of being able to get from island to island. You just can't comprehend what they actually did in incredibly resourceful uh, and, and, and hardy people. Mr. Heath, I, I take it you've got a book or two out about you uh, circumnavigating the, the globe, going off into, into the deep view yonder? No, I don't. In fact, I'm what? writing it right now. Um, I do have two novels out. If you're looking mm-hmm. for some great, exciting novels about Alaska, you can find those on Amazon. <laughs> um, both were nearly award-winning. They both are finalists in a number of awards, but they never got to be the, the, the selected novel. But, um, you, know, it's, you know, the trip now is, what, 30, 40 years behind me. And so I'm writing it you know, from that vantage point. So there'll be some excitement. There'll be a lot of, a lot of humor. It's, you know, I didn't know how to sail. I'd only sailed the boat one weekend before I left. And that was really my only experience sailing. And I got hit by a gale and instantly when I left the, the protected islands of Southeast Alaska. So it was all very exciting. And, and so the first part of the book is exciting. And the second part of the book is more reflective because by the second time of the book, I, I knew how to sail and I didn't make as many uh, mistakes, which makes for a, a lot less exciting story. But there might be a little bit more emotional resonance. You know, what's it like to be alive and to mm-hmm. sail under these extraordinary skies? But even when you're more experienced, the weather can do still do strange things, I'm guessing. So uh, it's, it doesn't stop being challenging on that basis. Yes and no. I, I, I mean, my worst weather was, in the, was actually in the Tasman Sea. And that was halfway around. I still had half the globe to go. And there was no serious weather. There was a, um, you know, I crossed the Mediterranean in February, which is just blindingly cold. And it was brutal. The winds were out of the northwest, right on the nose for 2,000 miles. And it took me two months to do it. It was, it was one of my two most difficult passages. But it wasn't harrowing so much as it was just exhausting. And on that note, right, we're going to have to go on to to our quiz but that but that was uh quite 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 the quite the cliffhanger it being incredibly exhausting seasoned listeners of this podcast will know that we uh do this in the middle of every episode and uh it means that the zoomers here uh can uh battle amongst themselves if you're listening to this podcast you're probably playing along as well but the winner of this quiz they you you will hear them immortalized in a future episode because they will then uh be delivering to you unto you i say to you uh the uh audio postcard so you know we don't we don't mess about on this podcast prestigious uh bragging rights are here to be won by uh andy gladwin i know he's he's actually won one before ken mcdonald's always won one uh won one or two and pat right my, my money's on you today pat don't be shaking your head <coughs> 
Be positive. Be positive. You've got this one in the bag. I know you have, Pat. And, uh, and this I'll is all based on places where Russell has been. Absolutely. And Pat, right, if you need any help with the answers, I'll text them to you. All right. There we go. Right. So question number one. The name Alaska is derived from the native Aleut word Ayaska. I think that's how you pronounce it. What does this mean? Long land, great land, land of river. So what does the native word, native Aleut word, Ayaska, uh, what does this actually mean? Long land, great land, land of rivers. Question number two. We're still in Alaska. How many stars are there on the Alaskan state flag? I put this in for Royfield because he loves the flag. You know what? I can't even place it in my mind right right now. I'm very bad on American state flags. So many of them are much of a muchness. I know. There are lots of them are very boring, aren't they? Yeah. This one isn't. Hmm. Yeah. Would it, so would it make help me feel my total on the Alaska state flag? Yes, please. Go on. Give us a clue. So we call it the Big Dipper and the North Star on the Alaska state flag. Right. I'm all over the answer now. Thank you, sir. Right. Is it A3, B5, C8? How many stars are there on the Alaskan state flag? The Sahara. How many countries contain part of the Sahara Desert? Is it A9, B10 or C11 if you count the Western Sahara? I just, you know what? Uh, I think you've left part of the answer in there, my darling. Uh... You know what? I'll tell you the reason why. I tell you the reason why I left this in because you left in the yeah, article. Yeah, I, did. I t- didn't edit it properly. Apologies. Yeah, and then I, and I thought I need to take that out, but I thought maybe you'd been clever, and but we've <laughs> we've we've messed up there. So if you can't get this one right, you need a little yeah. bit of a slap. Give it away, everybody who's, who's playing along. So 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 let's give you the answer. The question, the answer again. How many countries are part of the Saharan uh, the Sahara Desert? Is it A9? Hmm. Is it B10? Hmm. Or C11? Hmm. Right, there you go. Uh, question number four, still in the Sahara. The Sahara is the largest hot desert in the world, but what's its ranking of all types of deserts? Is it A, the second largest, B, the third largest, or C, the fourth largest? The Sahara is the largest hot desert in the world. But what is its ranking in all types of deserts? Is it A, the second largest, B, the third largest, or C, the fourth largest? Number five, Melbourne. What's the name of the river which Melbourne is built along? Is it A, the Peru, B, the Murray, or C, the Yarra? Melbourne. What's the name of the river which Melbourne is built along? A, the Peru, B, the Murray, or C, the Yarra. Still in Melbourne. Uh, what's the second most spoken language in Melbourne after English? Is it A, Hindi, B, Mandarin, or C, Greek? Melbourne. What is the second most spoken language in Melbourne after English? A, Hindi, B, Mandarin, or C, Greek? The Maldives. What's the official religion in the Maldives, is it A, Buddhism, C, Christianity, or C, Islam? What is the official religion of the Maldives? Is it Buddhism, Christianity, or Islam? 
The Maldives is one of the is the lowest lying country in the world. What is the average height above sea level? Is Maximum it... natural height above la- of sea level. Ah, oh, that's pretty close. Didn't yeah. remember. I want to get it right for people at home. So. Oh, fair enough. Is it A, four feet, B, five feet, or C, six feet? And what's exactly the question again, Claire? Uh, the Maldives is the lowest lying country in the world. What's the maximum natural height of land in the Maldives? Mm-hmm. There you go. Right, so we'll come back before the end of the podcast, which is going to be in approximately 13 minutes, and you'll get your answers. And I know for one, uh, my money is on Pat this month. <laughs> now, uh, Claire, um, what map-related uh, news do we have? All right. So um, on the social media side, I just wanted to put a call out for the hashtag 30 Day Map Challenge. So we're recording in November 2021. Um, and this is something that the international Twitter map community are doing posting maps every day throughout November. If you want some fantastic map action on Twitter, hashtag 30 day map challenge. Uh, There's some really interesting stuff there. And I retweeted one from um, at Matthew Law, which showed different colours for road numbering systems in the UK. And we've talked about this in the podcast before, but basically there's sort of a system whereby everything from north to east is a road name number beginning with one and then it's two and then it's three and then it's four coming out of London and then further north there's sevens and eights and so on. Um, and it was such a beautiful roadmap. Um, uh, totally recommend it. It's a bit like when you see these ro- maps of sort of river networks, but it was road networks, different colours for the different uh, numbering of maps. And I thought that was a very beautiful thing. Uh, but there are some fantastic things on the 30-day map challenge uh, hashtag and I just keep looking at it all the time. Brilliant. Um, and then over on the Facebook group, uh, kind of just a shout out for, for Jennifer Piper who's with us today, um, who posted a fun map of the most oddly named town in each US state, which caused all sorts of discussion, including um, some fantastically filthy name, names from our Fiona Chabot pal um, for, for her. The, the states there and um but the, there were some very peculiar names of towns in states and i don't discount that any of them were um actually quite weird although i'm willing to bet that there are further weird named towns in those states so uh that's quite a fun one to look at on the um facebook group fab now um any other more map related shenanigans you want to throw out to us claire well, I do have my map fact of the month or the map of the episode. Uh, which... think we should have a little bit of a jingle for that, or at least a <laughs> fanfare, shouldn't we? I'll leave it to you. You've, you've got a musical family. I'm sure you can come up with something. Um, and this one actually comes from a map that I just saw today that we've been tweeted or re-shared by a friend of the show, Solomon Kustamaka, who we've spoken to already, um, which showed the prevalence of roundabouts in different countries and showed that France is like top dog number one country for roundabouts, which I kind of believe, but I was quite surprised by. We've got a lot of roundabouts in this country, and um, I thought that uh, that we would be quite high. I thought roundabouts are quite a UK sort of thing. So, no, France, they are into their roundabouts. Um, and uh, I've already told you the story on this podcast once before about when I tried to navigate my dad round a roundabout in France, 
And I told him to take the first exit when I actually meant the last one because we were going the other way around because we were on the other side of the road and caused great traumas. <laughs> in <laughs> As soon as we were onto the roundabout, I go, oh, no, 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 we're going the other way around. What I mean is... <laughs> so um, my poor father uh, didn't really enjoy my navigational skills on that particular day. I must admit, right, it's something which... Um... A lot of people don't know, but I'm on a one-man crusade to get rid of the roundabout. Roundabouts only have one utility, which is to uh, get traffic very quickly off of uh, large roads. In cities, in urban environments, they disrupt natural uh, neighbourhood patterns. They discourage pedestrians from crossing streets that are unfriendly to cyclists. They are the devil's own work in an urban environment. And um, uh, you, it, here's a scoop for you, everybody. All right? I'm that anti the roundabout that I'm doing a series on what an evil thing they are on YouTube. So I'll be coming to you soon. That's how strongly I feel about them. So when, when you come to see me next week, we can go to Milton Keynes, shall we? And um, <laughs> have a drive around. I'll be spitting and, and turning in my grave. Um, so, uh, yeah, roundabouts. Ooh, ter- terrible things, terrible things. Um, now, uh, we, shall we do, shall we do quiz answers now, Claire? Or do we have some more tip-top uh, map-related info? Or can we even possibly... Go back to Mr. Russell Heath. I feel like I cut him off in his prime. I think Andy's got his hand up. So oh, right. Well, and, and Andy's it was, back uh, just a, around, a roundabout related. Well, it may not actually be a fact, but there's a suggestion that the reasons why roundabouts have proliferated in certain places is kickbacks to local politicians because of the construction contracts involved. So local town mayors and, you know, Unscrupulous politicians, you know, can um, benefit from awarding um, contracts to construct roundabouts. Um, that may or may not be true, um, but uh, I certainly heard that. So you, you do get certain countries where they weren't a thing once upon a time, and they've sort of like proliferated. They they've done studies, and with the American kind of four way stop system, a roundabout is more efficient by i forget how much we're quoted of it but it's more efficient in terms of getting traffic through but it's really interesting that um so in in america there are hardly any whenever a roundabout is put somewhere in in america because there's so few of them drivers get incredibly confused first off you take an american driver to the uk where we have them all over the place and they literally are kind of petrified first off but in berkeley I, I believe they think that they are sophisticated and European. So they've got really mini ones in places of, in the place of a four-way stop with a four-way stop, which defeats the whole purpose, you know, because you're supposed to be able to go through it if you see that there is nobody coming left or right or whatever, but you have to stop then to go round this tiny roundabout. They're the devil's own work. And they're destroying the urban environment. And I, I feel quite strongly about it. Anyway, uh, do we have a, <laughs> do we have any more map related content, Claire? Or shall we go on to uh, the quiz? Let's go on to the answers. Right, smashing. Right, here we go, folks. It is uh, that time when um, we are going to give you your quiz answers. Russell Heath, let's see how many of these you get. 
Um, Simon I mean, There's a Macri. chance to win the right to do the postcard for a future episode. So, like, exactly. you know, look that, lively. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and just just for uh, just so you know, Simon didn't do very well. The guess we had earlier on today. Yeah, no, very well. You've got a very low bar to vault to beat Simon Kirstenmacher, just saying. Right, now, Alaska. The name Alaska is derived from the Aleut word uh, Ayaska. Um, what does this mean? Is it A, long land, B, great land, C, land of rivers? And, of course, you know this because you kind of grew up there. So the answer yeah. is? Well, hang on. Before we get to the answer, two things. In Alaskan Native pronunciation all the vowels are pronounced so it's aliaska and it's aliut for both of those thank you and then technically native in in american usage would be capitalized because it's specific natives alaska natives but it is great land correct oh my god Who well done well done my money's on you also getting this one right uh, <laughs> on the alaskan state flag how many stars does it have russell well, you know, I've never in my life counted them, though I've seen the Alaska state flag for, you know, decades and decades, but um, it's eight. That's correct. The Sahara. How many countries contain part of the Sahara? Hmm. I believe you're probably going to accept two answers here, Claire. <laughs> I am going to accept two answers, and I'm really conscious of this because obviously uh, it depends if you count Western Sahara, which is a kind of... Um, a point of uh, conflict for, for some people, uh, and which I'm very uh, conscious of. So um, the answer is uh, 10 if you don't count Western Sahara and 11 if you do. So it's Algeria, Chad, Egypt, Libya, Mali, Mauritania, Morocco, Niger, Sudan, and Tunisia. Question for you. What is the desert in Egypt called? I, I've no idea. When I looked at the answer today, <laughs> I went, yeah, the Sahara doesn't go all the way to Egypt, but Egypt fundamentally is, is desert apart from the Nile. So what's that desert then? Well, it's Sahara. It's on that list. Oh, Egypt is on the list. Yeah, it's Sahara. But, you know, within the Sahara, there are thousands of different sub, sub you know, categories or geographical spots. Yes. Huh. So, yeah, for me, conceptually, the Sahara doesn't go all the way to Egypt conceptually. Like Libya, but Egypt? But anyway. All right. Thank you. Uh, the Sahara is the largest hot desert in the world, but what is its ranking in all types of deserts? I must have utterly no idea. Uh, Mr. Heath. Well, I don't either. My guess would be second because the only largest body of land, which is a desert, is Antarctica. And um, so I would go with A. So I've got it's the third largest because I think um, Antarctica and Gobi is a cold desert. Um, I can't. I can't remember because I've written in my notes which of the other the other two are. But um, uh, Antarctica is definitely the largest, obviously. Now, you interesting. Stay. I never would have thought Gobi was a was a cold desert. Um, I, I would have thought you'd have to be above the temperate zone for that to be the case. Okay. I wouldn't have thought the Gobi was a cold desert either. But I I, I would have guessed second largest because I discount Antarctica. You just think, oh. You know, it's ugh, snow, but of course, yeah, it's a, it's a desert. Uh, Melbourne, what is the name of the river which Melbourne is built along? And the answer is? Yara. Thank right. you, sir. Uh, still in Melbourne. Oh, I know this one. What is the second most spoken language in Melbourne after English? And the answer well, is? When I was there, it was Greek. So unless the de demographics has changed, it's, it's Greek. Yeah, big 
Greek community there. Actually, also. it's Mandarin. Really? So that, oh, so it has changed been, then. There has been dem- demographic change. Well, you know, as of the latest figures I picked off Wikipedia. I've, you know, You're always. fiendishly clever, Claire, because you knew that, you know, if you, with a certain sensibility, you're going to say Greek, right? But it's changed. Well done. So Melbourne, but I didn't know that. The largest, so it has the largest Greek population after Athens. Where, yeah. Again, I was there in, in uh, late 80s, 87, 88. Well done, Claire. That's a good one. The official religion of the Maldives is? Islam. Correct. It most definitely is. And then why don't you give us the exact question for the, la- okay, for so, the last one? Um, <clears throat> the Maldives is the lowest lying country in the world. What's the maximum natural height of land in the Maldives? So I spent a fair amount of time with the boat in the Maldives. It's an extraordinarily beautiful archipelago. And I was told there that it was five feet, but I never confirmed that. It is five feet. Wow. Yeah. So that well, is not a lot of depth. Uh, and you can understand why they are so concerned about climate change. Well, I would have thought that th- perhaps in the 30 or 40 years since I've been there, that it had been reduced as, a, as the ocean is rising. Yeah. Mm. Um, how many did you get, Mr. Heath? Well, I got, I got hung up on Mandarin. I mean, you should have had a date there. Well, because <laughs> we're talking about my context. My context was 1987, how about seven? Ooh. Six? No. Pat, Pat, you got six. Five. Who got five? Pat and Andy. Well, that doesn't make Russell the winner. So, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't be our first guest to do as a postcard. <laughs> he wouldn't be the first. No. I guess the one before. Yeah. Um, right, so... Here's the thing, Russell, right? Technically, if not actually, you've won, right? Would you like to do an audio postcard is the question. Can be about anything. We've never had one from Eastern Maine, have we, Claire? We have never had one from Eastern Maine, no. And all you've got to do is you talk into your phone and then I put the images to them, oh, Russell. You put the images, because that would have been my hang-up. No, 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 don't worry about that. You just that. have to blather for about four minutes and then, uh, and then, then Royfield does the rest. Yeah. I'll have to do it quick. It's getting bleak up here. Another month <laughs> till the snow comes. But, when, but you know what I reckon, though? You know what I do reckon, though? Yeah. I think we should have two. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's ask Pat because she's not the one. Exactly. Because I, cause you're from, you know, Cleveland. I am in Cleveland. Uh, my alternate, though, is not far from Eastern Maine. Um, our, we have another place that we live part of the year in Nova Scotia. And our daughter lives right on the Bay of Fundy. And I've always found that to be a very interesting uh, place. So you can let me know if you'd like to hear from Cleveland or if you'd like to hear from the Bay of Fundy. Well, whichever. It sounds, they both sound great. What's the due date? Oh, uh, about a month. Well, it's it's beautiful here when the snow snow is on the ground. Fair enough. Cool. I walked off 
to try and find this for you, Pat. And it was right behind me. Can you see that? Your Browns, your Browns jersey. Exactly, my Cleveland yeah. Browns jersey. Nice, excellent. And as you may know, our baseball team will now be called the Guardians, which I now I can switch my uh, allegiance from the Detroit Tigers uh, fully to the Guardians now that we're here. Good. Well, there you go. You're going to have to do uh, an audio postcard and explain the reasons why that name change needed to be made. Now, Claire, is it time for us to fold up our maps? It is time for us to fold up our maps. Brilliant. There you go, folks. Um, another fantastic episode of Map Corner. Russell Heath, you've been a total star. We thank you for coming on to the show. Um, when do you reckon your book will be out? Well, it's, um, I've got a lot of other projects on tap too, so it's a bit of a question whether I get it out in 2024 or in 2025. Wow. However... I gave a talk to the Explorers Club in New York City some years ago, and you can find that on YouTube. If you, Google, if you search on YouTube, my name plus uh, circumnavigation or sailing or Kainui, Kainui was the name of my boat, it'll pop right up. Um, it's an hour long. There are a, a couple journalists that did short pieces, so if it's less than an hour, you've got the wrong, the wrong talk. I can recommend it because I've watched it. <laughs> right, so uh, we'll see you all again. Pat, looking forward to that audio postcard. Uh, Andy Gladwin, Ken McDonald, Nick Roworth, who I discovered is a yoga, a master yoga teacher today. I have no idea, Nick. Bloody hell. Uh, and Sarah Spilsbury. Uh, we should maybe have that cup of tea in the jewellery quarter sometime soon whilst I'm in the West Midlands. And Jennifer, uh, lovely to, um, to to see you, to have you with us also. There you go. There's, there's Map Corner. Unfold up my map. What are you going to do with yours, Claire? I'm going to fold it up. Tatty, bye. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank Russell. you. Oh, Russell, you're fantastic. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.